At this time, any kids who are headed to our Covenant Kids worship may be dismissed. That's for all those four years old up to first or second grade. That'd be helpful for you and your family. They are more than welcome to, uh, to participate. As always, kids are welcome to stay with us here as well. And we count it an honor and privilege to have them a part of the service here this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 28 this morning. And before we get uh, to our passage, this will be the last week that we'll be in the gospel of Luke until after Advent. Uh, We will uh, be coming back to Luke uh, in the new year, uh, looking at uh, the week of Jesus' passion, the passion week from the new year up through our celebration of the resurrection at Easter. So, um, and then next week for the next 10 weeks leading up to Advent, we'll be looking at the life of the prophet Elijah. And so we look forward to that. But before we get to our text today, um, I don't know if you've, ever, if you've heard uh, this story before. It's um, probably not. I had never, I didn't know of this story. Uh, it was um, in the early, uh, early part of... Uh, of uh, right after the turn of uh, from uh, B.C. to A.D., right before the, the turn of the, the century, or right after the turn of the century. And, you know, it, it was under the Roman, Roman Empire, Roman rule, most of the world was. And the Romans did not like to give the title rex or king to their own rulers, but on occasion they would give it to a vassal ruler, uh, particularly in some of their eastern provinces, And that's how Herod the Great was given the title King of Judea at the time of Jesus' birth. He was, it was instilled on him by the, by the Romans, by Caesar. And when he died, his will gave his son Archelaus over half of his kingdom. But the title couldn't be passed on. The title of king wasn't passed on to his son. And so, Poor Archelaus wanted to be called king, but couldn't be called king. And so Archelaus decided that he would assemble an entourage and head to Rome and try to convince Caesar to give him the title of king. So he took with him his mother, some friends, his half-brothers, Antipas and Philip, and others that he thought would be good to take with him to show Caesar what a great guy he was and that he should be king. But to Archelaus' surprise in Rome, some of his family opposed him getting the title of king, even accusing him before Caesar. And then even more surprisingly, a delegation of 50 Palestinians, both Jews and Samaritans, showed up in Rome. They had traveled there to oppose Archelaus before Caesar. And when they arrived, a huge number of Jews, numbering 8,000, showed up. 8,000 Jews living in Rome showed up with this 50 before Caesar. And the Palestinians related how Archelaus had massacred some 3,000 Jews at Passover, heaping their bodies in the temple, and then tortured others to prove how powerful he was as a king. 
And if that wasn't enough, they argued that he was inept and corrupt. And after hearing all parties, Caesar dismissed the assembly. And after a few days, he announced his decision, which satisfied no one. He gave half the kingdom to Archelaus with the title Ethnarch, which is basically a ruler over an ethnic group, promising to make him king if he could prove himself worthy. Archelaus, the wannabe king, showed that he wasn't worthy and was removed by Caesar and exiled to Gaul, modern-day France. Why did I tell you that story this morning? Well, because Jesus tells a parable that sounds very, very similar. Takes a different turn than the Archelaus story, but it was a story well known by Jesus and his hearers. Everyone would have known this story. And so Jesus tells this parable that would have been familiar to everyone who is hearing, except this was not about a wannabe king, but the true king. Let's read Luke 19, 11 through 28. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said... Therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a, in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are, severe, you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you and your, with your own words, you wicked servant. You, know that I was, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And he said to him, Lord, and they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word made flesh who dwelt among us in Jesus. And Lord, as we hear his words this morning, pray that you would give us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that we might be transformed by your word and conformed to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So this, as I mentioned, is the final sermon in our Luke series, Certainty in Christ, until after Advent. So, and over the next 10 weeks, like I said, we'll be looking at the life of the prophet Elijah. But before we get to Elijah, we have this one more parable of Jesus in Luke. And last week, Pastor Alex preached from the story of Zacchaeus. We saw that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And our parable this morning comes in that context. Do not forget that, right? Likely, Jesus is still in the home of Zacchaeus because the text says, as they heard these things, what were they hearing Jesus saying to Zacchaeus and to those who were there, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So this is the context of our text today, that Jesus is still likely in the home of Zacchaeus, just prior to Jesus and his followers making this ascent up the 15 or so miles from Jericho up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover, when Jesus will be abused by his enemies, give his life on the cross for our sins, rise from the dead and ascend to heaven to receive the name that is above every name be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the context that Luke tells us that Jesus tells this parable. He tells this parable because, what what does Luke say? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, right? They have seen Jesus do amazing things, They have heard him teaching about the coming of the kingdom. And the excitement is growing. They're going to celebrate Passover with Jesus in Jerusalem. And maybe, just maybe, the kingdom that God promised us is about to be established. Because he was near to Jerusalem, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, they, his followers, and others who are listening, believed that it might be time for the kingdom to come. Yet, the kingdom was coming, but not as they hoped. And Jesus was giving them and us one more explanation of his kingdom, his kingly authority, and his return as the true king. And so as we come to our text today, the question that we are confronted with is, are we ready for the return of the king? There will be no Lord of the Rings analogies in this message. Even though with the new show coming out, I think it kind of opens back up the ability to to use Lord of the Rings uh, illustrations and analogies. There There was kind of like a, you know, a ban on those for a while because we just, you know, as pastors, we use them so much for so many years. Um, but I think that ban is, so, you know, in, a, in the coming sermon, we'll probably get back to using some Lord of the Rings illustrations. But are we ready for the return of the king? In our text, we see that Jesus is the true king and he'll return to judge. Judge his servants and judge his enemies. First, he, come, he will come to judge his servants. With this parable, 
Jesus gives his disciples the assurance of a long-range view of ultimate vindication and triumph for the kingdom, despite the fact that their king is about to suffer, which they will misinterpret at first. And so Jesus gives them this parable to help them understand what they do not yet understand. This person of noble birth, this nobleman, is sent He's set to receive his kingdom. But before he goes to receive his kingdom, he gives his servants a gift. Each of them gets one mina or about three months wages. And they are to engage in business until I come. Right? There's no like misunderstanding of what is supposed to happen, right? The 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 would-be king, the, the nobleman, comes to, his, comes to his servants and gives them this gift and instructs them on what they are supposed to do. They are to engage in business. Use this gift to produce, to profit, to bless, to prepare the kingdom for his return, right? To be at work, to be doing the things that the nobleman would do if he were there to produce profit, bless. Right? And this mina does not signify an ability. It signifies a deposit. Right? And there's another parable that Jesus tells that is very similar, and we often get them mixed up, and we often confuse them, the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents is about talents. The parable of the minas is about a deposit given to his servants to produce, to profit, to bless. And the servants of this king are to use this gift, this deposit to continue the work of the king and his kingdom. Right? And this deposit is given to every to all of his servants. This deposit is, is given to every Christian, namely the gospel. Every follower of Jesus is a steward of the gospel. Paul repeatedly speaks of being entrusted with the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, 1 Timothy 1, 11, 1 Timothy 6, 20, 2 Timothy 2, 2, being entrusted with the gospel. And each believer receives the same investment capital for the Christian life. We all have the good news of Jesus and its marvelous effect in our lives. And we all have the same command. Put this to work until I come back. Put this money to work until I come back. We must invest the investment Christ has made in us. The gift that we have been given is to make investments in the world. We are to multiply our spiritual capital, invest the gospel, increase the yield of the good news of salvation through Christ. This is not a matter of gifting, right? There's no gifting talked about in this parable. It is about the investment. It is about how we use what we have been given. This is a matter of investment. This is, of course, done through the ministry and work of the church, God's people. We just 
started Sunday school this, this week. It is about the investment that we give into the lives of one another. Evangelism, different aspects of church ministry, but it is also done through our work, right? Our work, the things that we have been given to do in the world is integral, not incidental to our discipleship, to our following Jesus, right? Do business, the nobleman says. Use this gift that I have given you and do business with it. It's to be done through our work in the home, in school, in the marketplace, wherever we are. We are to use the gift of, this, of the gospel. Not merely about sharing the good news that Jesus came to die and to rise again. That is essential in the gospel. But the gospel is even more than that. We are to use this gift to glorify God and to serve others. Right? The gospel at its simplest, simplest is that Jesus died for us, died to, in the place of us for our sins. But it is more than simply that. The death and resurrection of Jesus changes everything as we talked about a few weeks ago. And all that we do is changed and it's done for him, for his glory, for our good and for the good of others, for the growth and outlook of the kingdom of God. We use these, this gift that he has given us to glorify him and to serve others. This gospel is that Jesus is king over everything. As Abraham Kuyper once said, Jesus looks over all of the universe and says, mine. Everything, every aspect of our lives, every aspect of the world is Jesus's. And we are called to use the gift of the gospel faithfully as we await the return of the king. And so the king returns to settle accounts, first with his servants on the basis of their investments, and then his enemies who rejected his kingship. Right? And these ones who come to him and say, you're mina, right? They don't, it's not mine, right? The gift that you gave me, yours, your mina produced 10, produced five. And Jesus says, the returning king says, you will be put over 10 cities or five cities. They become vice rulers. They become viceroys of these cities. They become companions of the king, right? They are no longer servants. Do you see that in the text? They are no longer servants, right? They have been elevated to a place of, of rule with the king. They're not equal to the king, but they have been given kingly authority under the oversight of the king, they are no longer servants, but companions, confidants. They are friends, as Jesus calls his disciples. You are no longer my servants, you are my friends. 
And so Jesus gives them not the cities, really. He gives them relationship. He says, you and I are now friends. You and I are companions. And then the servant who doesn't do anything with the mina, though, except for put it away and hide it. The unfaithful servant. And what's interesting is that he believes something about the nobleman that is not true. Right? He says in uh, verse 20, then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. This nobleman has given them a gift and asked them to put it to work, to do business with it. This other servant's thoughts about his master are actually somewhat slanderous and not based on the truth. He's called him a hard man, means strict, yet his master is clearly giving, one who gives freely. This man's works are instead incinerated right? It's taken from him. What was given was taken from him. Now, there is a disagreement here in terms of what this servant receives in the end. Does he reserve, deserve, receive ultimate punishment, or is he, does he get in by the hair and his chinny-chin-chin, chin, so to speak? Well, it would seem that Jesus is saying here that even his servant who was unfaithful, who misapplied his master's desire, is yet still his servant. And even though, as Paul said of wood, hay, and straw, the works that are burned up, right, in 1 Corinthians 3.15, if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Jesus still welcomes his servant, even ones that escape through the flames, so to speak. Because if you look at Verse 24 and following, it says, And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. The crowd doesn't agree with that. <laughs> Yet Jesus says, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even that he has will be taken away. But he doesn't include this servant in with his enemies. Notice that. And while Jesus, the king, wants his servants to be faithful, even those who 
misunderstand fully who he is, Jesus says, is his servant is welcomed in. Even it is burned up. He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So Jesus judges his servants, but he also judges his enemies. Jesus judges his own and then moves on to judging his enemies. And this may shock us, right? This may shock us to see Jesus, to hear Jesus talk like this, right? Jesus in his earthly ministry was, as some have put it, gentle and lowly. And he was gentle and lowly in how he welcomed sinners, how he welcomed those who were in need. And yet, Jesus is also the Jesus who will come again. And John gives us a picture of this in Revelation. Jesus, the lamb who was slain, the lamb who is gentle and lowly is also the lion of Judah. And John has this image that he shares with us in Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John writes these words, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like burnt, like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus will return. After receiving his kingdom, he will come again. He has promised it. And those who hate him and reject his kingdom will receive final judgment. Jesus will put his enemies under his feet. And that may sound scary. Right? But for the children of God, the servants of God, the family of God, there is nothing to fear. But if, if that is not you, 
there is something to fear, Jesus says. When he comes again, he will come with final judgment. And that may sound scary. Even for those of us who are, who are like, yes, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he will stand upon the earth in the last day, and I will be his and he mine. I think it, does, it sounds scary to us because we don't truly believe that there needs to be judgment. Right? There is evil and sin that needs to be judged. And the only one who can judge it is Jesus. And before he completes the process of making all things new, judgment on the darkness, on the evil, must come. And guess what? That is good news. As scary as it can sound, it is good news. Because without it, without Christ's judgment, that world to come cannot exist. And so Jesus says that he is coming again. And all of his enemies will receive final judgment. King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me just close by saying, while the stewardship of what has been given to us, the gospel is an important theme, do not miss what Jesus tells us this ultimately is about. It is about his kingship his lordship, his coming again. And the major question at this point in the Gospel of Luke for us is how shall we receive the kingship of Jesus? With thanksgiving and faithfulness or with contempt and as an enemy? Those who are his are welcomed to live in his kingdom. Those who are his enemies are judged and cast out. Are you a faithful servant or an enemy? The answer to that question is the difference between life and death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the deposit you have given us, the gospel, and how, Lord, that is that we have been rescued from death to life, and yet, Lord, it is even beyond that and more glorious and great that it is your kingdom in its fullness to come because of the work of your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would Help us to live faithfully 
as servants of the King while we await. And Lord, if we find ourselves this day not a servant of the King, may we take this warning to heart that Jesus who is gentle and lowly and welcomes the sinner, the hurting, the lost, the poor in spirit, will one day come as the conquering king and put all of his enemies under his feet. Where we pray that no one would be found under his feet. But all put their faith in you, would turn to you. Lord, we pray and thank you, Lord, that we can trust in the judgment of Jesus. He comes to judge as far as the curse is found. He comes to make all things new. We pray this in Jesus' powerful and precious name. Amen.